you very much, Alex. Um, uh, I'd like to start by thanking you very much for inviting me. Uh, it's a privilege to speak to bright people uh, that are interested in evolution medicine. Um, as Alex said, I'm, I'm probably here mainly just because I am actually a clinician. I work in medicine. Spent the weekend on call, uh, senior registrar at uh, St James's in Leeds. Jimmy, you might have heard of it. it was, so recently, the largest um, teaching hospital in Europe, 1,000 beds, 25 bed intensive care unit. Um, so that's that's my day job is, is I, I do medicine, uh, I do intensive care, um, but I've always been interested in evolutionary medicine since prior to ever uh, second foot in medical school. Um, so that's a bit of my background. There aren't enough uh, medics that uh, are interested in evolution or appreciate the importance of evolution of either in medicine. Um, you were already uh, quite unique in a very small sort of population of people in that you uh, already had some teaching in this and are already probably ahead in your understanding of the evolution of medicine, uh, ahead of about 98% of the medical profession, um, which is uh, it means you have a lot of responsibility to go forth and use that knowledge because um, we're deeply, unfortunately, in medicine about the value of applying Darwinian principles in medicine. Um, I understand you've, you've had a bit of lecture-based uh, teaching on this already, but just to sort of revise, so who's, who's actually seen or read the Nessian Williams book, Why We Get Sick? A few there, okay. Um, so I read that at the end of my second year biology degree when I was considering doing medicine, that kind of made my mind up. Um, and in that they lay down uh, different ways that an evolutionary approach can help you understand medicine. Um, the ones that are particularly uh, of relevance to my area of interest in intensive care are understanding defence mechanisms in the body, so there are a lot of adaptive defence mechanisms in the body many of which are hard to tease apart from symptoms of disease, things going wrong, we, we often misunderstand uh, a manifestation of disease, certainly in critical illness, and see it as a, a problem or a dysfunctional manifestation, and often it's something of adaptive benefit. Um, the flip side of that, as always in evolution, is lots of things uh, that we see in disease are maladaptive and are a result of evolution. Uh, and a lot of medics don't understand that um, something maladaptive can be the product of evolution. Okay, so I'm not a, a rabid adaptationist. I don't think that everything that we see uh, in critical illness is, a, is adaptive because uh, the unfortunate reality of intensive care medicine is lots of people die. Okay. Um, Co-evolution arms races. Uh, we hear a lot in the press about the demise of our antibiotic arsenal. Uh, that is a massive concern for me as someone who depends on a daily basis on antibiotics to make people better. Um, there aren't really any left. Okay, and the ones we've got, every time you prescribe them and use them, they become a little bit less effective. Uh, and they are going to run out and we're going to be stuck for answers. Um, but I'm going to talk about an interesting novel antimicrobial therapy that, that's been researched at the moment that's come exclusively from an evolutionary medicine approach. Uh, other things, constraints, evolutionary constraint, trade-offs. Uh, you know, you make one thing better, you make something else worse. Uh, reproductive success over health and mismatch. I'd love to talk about mismatch in epigenetics. So recently a paper on epigenetics 
uh, that was presented the Intensive Care Society and won the gold medal for it's look, looking at uh, epigenetic signatures in critical illness. So they were able to evidence a, a chap called Pete Biddy, uh, certain genes that had been manipulated, not regulated in critical illness, and identify those six, eight weeks down the line um, from the period of critical illness and to be able to say this person has been very sick with an epigenetic signature. That's an exciting new development. Those of you who've seen anything about genetics will know it's an exponentially developing field um, and it's certainly been very interesting to see it applied in intensive care medicine. Um, old school biology, Tim Bergen's four Ys. So uh, Nico Tim Bergen's sort of classic uh, approach to how you can ask questions in biology. Why does something happen? Uh, things happen for different reasons. So mechanism and causation. He applied it to behaviour, but you can apply it to anything in, in, in biology and medicine, really. So mechanism causation, we're quite good at this in medicine, or we like to think we are. So in intensive care, we'll look at the inflammatory response, say, why does someone get febrile? And we'll get a massive diagram with different cytokines and interleukins, and we'll say, oh, because this upregulates that, and da, da, da. But we very seldom ask this question, stepping back. But why? Why do we have all this signaling? Why do we have this inflammatory response? Is it beneficial? Is it not beneficial? We tend to operate exclusively in the mechanistic proximate box in medicine. And unfortunately, we very seldom ask the bigger evolutionary question of why does this happen? And I'm going to show it with the example of preeclampsia, how through evolutionary medicine, someone from outside medicine uh, can propose a theory that helps us understand all this. Uh, change treatment um, uh, and improve outcomes um, in critical illness. And that's really the role of evolutionary medicine is to ask sensible questions, do good research, and then have an evidence base that says we can improve care. And I would encourage you all, every time you have any talk on evolutionary medicine, to ask the question that most clinicians will ask, which is, how is this going to improve clinical care? How is this going to help make people better? Um, because often the bridge from evolutionary medical theory, evolutionary anthropology, medical anthropology to actually making a difference is a bit nebulous. Uh, and I would contend that critical care perhaps provides an exciting arena where people are quite interested in life and death. We find that quite a stimulating topic. And if you can have an idea that translates into research study, that translates into someone not dying that would have died, um, that should turn people's heads and I think potentially uh, so-called Darwin critical care can be a bit of a, hopefully generate some publicity in that respect for the evolution medicine movement, which is moving on a pace. Certainly the 15 years that I've been following it, um, the number of textbooks has gone from two to about 15. And the conferences, the first conference I went to in Maine, there were about 50 others. The last one I went to, um, a couple of years ago in the States, there was about 500 people there. It's a burgeoning field, uh, and rightly so. I'm not keeping an eye on time, Alex, so you just have to prod me if I'm going over, okay. So, how can we use the evolutionary approach uh, on the intensive care unit? Um, one, by understanding what is a defence and what is not a defence. I'm going to talk about what happens to iron in infection uh, and arms races with bacteria about iron. I'm going to talk about the novel antimicrobial therapy that, that, that I mentioned. We talk about fever, that's a classic evolutionary medicine case study. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about what generally happens when someone is ill with sepsis, and we'll talk a bit about sepsis, uh, and how clinicians often misunderstand uh, potentially how to manage that. And then we'll take a different tack and talk about conflict, uh, evolutionary conflict, and how that's essentially an understanding of preeclampsia, um, which again is a nasty disease that kills young women and babies, um, and is horribly poorly understood by the very people that look after it, um, people like me <laughs> and their uh, obstetricians. Um, really, the, the components of the, the evolutionary approach to critical care is trying to tease out what is something going wrong in disease, what's a bad symptom, and what is an adaptive mechanism, defence mechanism that we should support. Um, how generally biologists understand these mechanisms quite a lot better than clinicians, unfortunately but we don't read their journals, we don't read their literature, we don't understand a lot of the biology that we're dealing with, um, and how that can uh, feed into supporting the adaptive features of the acute phase response uh, and new treatments, because again, that's what this is all about, is trying to uh, improve medical care. Um, so why do people die on intensive care? You've probably heard there's quite a lot of stuff in the press at the moment about sepsis, um, which is basically when you get an infection of any kind, it gets into the bloodstream and all hell breaks loose. Okay? Your blood vessels dilate, they lose fluid into the tissues, um, your blood pressure plummets, your heart, brain and kidneys become dysfunctional, um, you get breathless, you get tired, you need to go on a ventilator, your kidneys fail, you need to go on a dialysis machine. Um, your blood pressure is so low, you need big lines put in to give you adrenaline to keep your blood pressure up. Um, all the medications are turned up until you've still got no blood pressure, your blood is very acidic, uh, and your organs fail, and you die. That's how people die of sepsis in intensive care. Okay? Lots of people survive with appropriate management at the appropriate time. Um, but this is kind of the environment that I, it's a slightly old-fashioned picture now, but this is the kind of environment that, that we exist in. And we're interested in sepsis because it's pretty much reversible, um, and it's a massive global burden. This is an ICU monitor. The traditional approach, really, on intensive care is to, be, is to look at someone with abnormal physiology and make it normal. If they've got low blood pressure, make it up make it higher, if they've got a fast heart rate, make it slower, if they've got low oxygen, make it higher, if their blood's acid, acidic, buffer it up, um, and to try and restore so-called normal physiology without questioning, is the patient benefiting in any way from any of these abnormal parameters? Um, people are gradually coming around to the idea that perhaps we should identify whether there is benefit to them and treat the ones that aren't beneficial and support the ones that are. So this is uh, a slide basically showing uh, that everyone that comes to intensive care gets anemic. Their iron levels in their blood drop. The normal level, you can see it here, around 13, 14, 15. The different plots are people coming in with different levels of uh, uh, pre-existing iron levels. This person came in anemic, got transfused up to a, a hemoglobin of 10. These people are coming in with high haemoglobins, but everyone within three days, 95% of people on intensive care are anemic. And that's not just people that are bleeding, that's just everyone who becomes anemic, okay? Nearly half of them um, will get red blood cell transfusions, and on average someone comes into intensive care will get five units 
of blood, which is quite a lot. Um, the reasons for this are poorly understood by clinicians, unfortunately. So, bacteria need iron, okay? And they need it in a very hand-to-mouth way. They're small, and if you starve them of it, they die, okay? This is a bit of a busy slide, but it's necessarily a busy slide because it's trying to illustrate all the different ways that bacteria evolved to steal iron in the bloodstream from a vertebrate host, okay? So they can secrete siderophores, uh, and they do this in a kind of communal, cooperative way. So they secrete siderophores into the blood, and any free iron is bound to the siderophores, and then it's available to the bacteria. And this stuff is very good at binding iron. That's the association constant 10 to the 50. It just magnetizes iron and locks it, and then the bacteria can use it. Okay? The body transports them in heme proteins, and hemophores and heme proteins steal it the bacteria, okay? The body also tries to hide it with transferrin and lactoferrin, and the bacteria has transferrin and lactoferrin receptors that lock on and say, thank you very much, I'll take that iron, okay? So there's an arms race that's been going on through time where bacteria are trying to steal iron and we're trying to hide it. That's the game, okay? Um, in that minute, you now understand this better than 95% of medics. Okay, which is a bit tragic, but it's true. Okay, uh, I went to intensive care conference last week with a big talk on a massive trial about blood transfusion, where the presenter put up a slide saying, "Why do we get anemic on intensive care?" There was nothing in there about iron withholding. There was nothing in there about iron sequestration. There was nothing in there about the fact that bacteria need iron and the body tries to hide it, and that's why we get anemic. Okay. So there's, there's quite a gross level of ignorance within the profession, and that's, that's not necessarily our fault, because we don't get taught this stuff, because the people that know this stuff are evolutionary biologists, and the people that write medical school curricula uh, don't know this, and they don't want to invite evolutionary biologists in to teach their medical students, okay? which is, again, one of the big problems we have in getting evolutionary medicine into the medical school curriculum. So this is a big famous study in intensive care. Traditionally what we would do is see that someone got anemic on intensive care and go, oh they're anemic, let's transfuse them, let's give them some blood, let's get some more blood in there, even if they weren't bleeding. We wouldn't say, why are they anemic, is it beneficial that they're anemic, does that improve their outcome? We would just give them blood and their hemoglobin would go back to normal and we'd go, great, we've normalised everything, that must be good. Um, so in this trial they said, well what happens if you allow their iron levels to get right, right down to half normal, seven grams per deciliter, before you transfuse them. And everyone was, was a bit worried about this and said, well, they won't have enough oxygen delivery, they'll have abnormal numbers, that would be a disaster. But actually, they found a mort mortality benefit from using a restrictive transfusion trigger. So letting the, the hemoglobin get three grams lower was actually low hospital mortality. This was massive news. This was quite a big surprise. Uh, and this is, is still one of the definitive intensive care medicine studies. It had a big impact. There's a, the subsequent 15, 20 years worth of literature following on from this. Loads more studies about anemia in intensive care. And again, nobody talks about that previous slide about iron sequestration and about the fact that bacteria need iron because we're ignorant, which is unfortunate. Um, again, this is the capital marker which shows uh, the survival 
with the liberal and rest um, restrictive transfusion strategies. Um, again, meta-analysis, lots of different studies looking at if you get transfused blood, do you get infections? Um, and you can see, by and large, um, the, the benefit is on the side uh, very much of restrictive transfusion regimes. Um, if you get a blood transfusion, you're giving more iron, there's a higher risk of infection in simple terms. Um, likewise, the risk that you will die is higher. Okay? There are exceptions, so if you have bad heart disease, ACS is acute coronary syndrome, then you need a bit more oxygen delivery and you might benefit. But for everyone else, the risk of death is higher uh, in meta-analyses. Another way you can give iron is to give it intravenously rather than giving someone a blood transfusion. Um, a recent meta-analysis in the British Medical Journal identified that your relative risk of getting an infection if you get an iron, uh, IV iron therapy is about one and a half, so you one and a half more times more likely to get an infection than IV iron. The sad thing about this meta-analysis is that all the studies that they looked at, and there were quite a few looking at this therapy, only about half to two thirds of them actually included an outcome measure of infection because uh, a third of those researchers, and these are people who do their research on anemia and iron, didn't know that they should look for the risk of infection when they give iron because they don't know that bit of biology we just talked about. Okay? So it's a third of researchers that work in this area don't know that they should be looking at the risk of infection when you give intravenous iron. Um, so here's a nice video from Matt Barber. I should credit Janet also who works with who, who did the video. Um, so Matt uh, did a paper uh, in science uh, where he looked at the genetics of a vertebrate of humans uh, and a bacterium that infects them. And it's about bacterial iron piracy, so bacteria stealing the iron. And he was able to map out over time uh, specific mutations on either side of this arms race, such that it's always hard to commentate on this video because it's not a very long video, but I'll try. So this is transfer, and this is a human protein that hides the iron. Red and green lighty up bits are specific uh, genetic loci. So this is the primate, uh, it's kind of phylogenetic tree, evolution through time. And this is the bacterial binding protein that tries to steal it, okay? New mutation stops it binding on, and then the bacteria, counter mutation, locks back on. Massive selection benefit. Counter mutation, counter mutation, and so we see an arm trace spanning out through time that Matt was able to map out with specific genes. Uh, and I think this is a great paper, and rightly won the uh, Gilbert Men uh, Prize that year for the best paper in evolutionary medicine. And it's a great video as well. Other interesting points about this, the point about the reason why bacteria is such a, a tough opponent, they have a rapid, rapid, uh, short generation time, and they evolve rapidly. So as soon as the, the human host gets the mutation that stops it binding, the latency before you get the counter strike is very short in the bacterium, whereas the human takes a longer time to find that mutation, and again, rapidly, um, the, the bacteria can rapidly, rapidly evolve that counter mutation to steal the iron. I think that's a really nice example of an evolutionary arms race, um, and 
is it relevant? It's highly relevant. So the bacteria that he was studying was Neisserium meningitidis, meningococcus, that causes meningitis. And that's a disease that could kill anyone in this room by tomorrow morning quite easily. Okay. Um, the unfortunate part of this is if you go and ask uh, a critical care doctor or an intensive care doctor, is iron particularly important to meningitis or invading bacteria? They'll probably say, not really, because they haven't seen this kind of biology. I don't want to scare you, but this is the scale of medical ignorance that we're talking about in terms of the evolutionary dynamics of infection. Um, so why is it useful to understand these kind of things? So Aidan Gillespie, Michael Weigert and Sam Brown and Rob Cummerley did a great paper in the Journal of Evolution, Medicine, Public Health, which I would recommend to you as a source of evolutionary medicine learning. Uh, and they thought, well, how can we hijack that mechanism um, to counter infection? So they looked at guide, which is, uh, has the same valency as iron. It's kind of a crude iron mimic. Um, it's FDA approved. It's used in various other branches of medicine. Um, so you can give it to people and, and to, to mammals and it won't kill in appropriate uh, doses. So they said, well, what about in infection, if we give gallium, which is of a similar size to iron, will all the siderophores and hemophores and all that machinery that bacterium has to steal iron, can you saturate it with gallium? Would that work? There were some preliminary studies um, in the last couple of decades that suggested this might work. So they, uh, they used an animal model um, with um, uh, Pseudomonas, which again is a nasty infection that you see on intensive care um, quite commonly. Uh, and they, um, this is again, this is a busy slide, but we'll work through it because it's worth it. So what you've got is basically uh, bacterial growth on the y-axis and just time on the x-axis. So on this slide, and on all of the slides, black is the control group. So you just put the bacteria in a petri dish and just count them over days, and you'll see they grow quite well. And then the weak green line is if you give them ciprofloxacin um, in a quite a weak concentration, which is common antibiotic. And that does reduce their numbers, but over time, the numbers increase as resistance emerges. The stronger green line, you give them a higher concentration of the antibiotic, it's more effective, but again, over time, its efficacy wanes. The weak grey line, you give them a weak concentration of gallium, uh, and it's more effective than either of the antibiotics, um, but it doesn't kill all the bacteria. And this line is if you give them a strong concentration of gallium. I find this a very exciting line for two reasons. One, look how effective it is at killing bacteria, um, but perhaps even more significantly, it's a flat line. So you can carry on for, for two weeks and you don't get any emergence of resistance. Okay, there aren't any anti antibiotics that are resistance proof. Okay. Uh, this graph here is just two different gallium concentrations with control. This graph here is a different antibiotic, gentamicin, so the, the light blue is a weak gentamicin concentration, the dark blue is a strong gentamicin concentration. Look how quickly emergence of resistance occurs in this graph. Okay, weak gallium is better than the antibiotic, and strong gallium is pretty universally effective. And then these two lines are cocktails of the antibiotics. So often we'll give an antibiotic cocktail, 
and that will help to an extent. But again, you get the emergence of resistance over time, and even with the mix of strong concentration, ultimately, is less effective than a weak concentration of gallium. Um, this is very exciting because, uh, as I say, there aren't any in antibiotics where you don't get the emergence of resistance, whereas because this acts on so-called public goods, so it doesn't act on individual bacteria where you get differential survival and the emergence of uh, uh, differential reproduction and you, you, you strongly select for a resistant strain because it doesn't act directly on the bacteria, it acts on the things the bacteria they need, they need, which means all the bacteria are affected to the same extent. And probably the only way a bacteria could circumvent this um, is to not be dependent on iron, which would require pretty massive and complex and sudden mutation. There, is, there are pathogens, uh, Borrelia, Burgdorferi, which causes Lyme disease. Uh, interestingly, it relies on zinc rather than iron. Zinc levels do fall on infection. I'm not aware of much research that's looked at that. So there are pathogens out there that would not be affected by this. Uh, it's only an animal model. Animal models do have a disappointing habit of not translating to human medicine very well. Um, but certainly, I think the theoretical footing of this is very strong. And I'm very excited about what will come from this. This is a great example of how, if you understand the evolutionary biology of bacteria and the human response to bacteria, you can create a novel treatment that potentially could have massive implications for healthcare around the world. It might, it might not. We'll see. Um, but it's a great idea, and I think it shows the power of the evolutionary medical approach. And um, it does meet that, that question of how could this change practice? This could change practice massively. Um, so what happens in sepsis? So you get lots of physiological stresses. You get hypoxia, low oxygen in the blood for a variety of reasons. You tend to get acidosis, so the blood becomes more, uh, the pH drops, and that's often viewed as a, a big physiological stress. So you get a reduction in iron levels, you get an anemia, um, lots of physiological derangements. And our approach on intensive care, as I said, historically has been to try and normalize them, give iron, give blood transfusions, give oxygen, give lots of oxygen, not just enough to get back to a normal level, give massive amounts. Let's see how much we can give. Um, only recently, again, have we come to appreciate that if you give someone supernormal levels of oxygen and look at their mortality, it's actually higher. Um, oxygen has a variety of deleterious effects um, uh, to do with free radical damage, to do with the fact that in higher oxygen tensions, the, uh, if you look at Fe2 and Fe3 ferrous and ferric iron, you flip the balance towards more bioavailable uh, iron by having higher oxygen tensions that potentially potentiate infection. Um, there are a number of reasons why it's undesirable to have really high oxygen tensions, but miraculously we've only really recently got the evidence to appreciate this. Um, so again, uh, you know, the, the simplistic restoration of normality is not necessarily the best way. There's a paper by uh, a chap called Joe Alcock and Ed Legrand. Um, Joe is probably, uh, I'd say, the, the, the preeminent critical care evolutionary medic um, of the very, very, very small handful uh, that exist. Uh, his dad actually was quite an eminent biologist, John Alcock. Um, so again, he's in that unique position of being a, uh, a 
practicing emergency care clinician, but who also has quite a good school in biology. And they did a paper um, about what they called immune brinkmanship. So they said, okay, someone's got an acute phase response to illness, if they've got sepsis, they've got this disastrous abnormalities of everything. Uh, could that be adaptive? And, and clinicians would say, well, that can't possibly have any benefit to the patient to be hypoxic, to be febrile, to be, have a, a fast heart rate and a low blood pressure. Um, it will kill them. But they asked the question, all these physiological stresses, to whom are they more stressful? So are they more stressful to the infecting agent, the bacterium, or are they more stressful to the person as the illness? It's much like saying, you know, if you're in the sea, you turn up scuba dive, you turn around, you see a great white shark, you think, oh my god, I'm going to get eaten and die. I can never outswim a shark. You don't need to be able to outswim a shark. You just need to be able to outswim your dive buddy. Okay? <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what they're talking about here. Is, yeah, it is a physiological stressor. But if it's more of a stressor to the bacterium that's very hand-to-mouth, it's small, it has very immediate needs, but if you can tolerate a period of critical illness, you might be able to clear an infection by having this abnormal, disastrous environment. So we talk about homeostasis in medicine, the maintenance of physiological norms. Um, and certain people, like Mervyn Singer, who's quite an eminent um, critical care clinician, coined the term allostasis, so the maintenance of a, of a different um, environment, critical illness, um, for, the, for the purposes of um, adaptive benefit and clearing infection. Um, so this is a paper he did where he even uses the word adaptive, which is not a word you'll see much in medical literature. So I thought I'd put it up just to see it in print. Multi-organ failure is an adaptive uh, in response to overwhelming systemic inflammation. Um, we talk a lot about organ failure in, in critical care, when actually a lot of the changes that you see in so-called organ failure, they're not. We talk about uh, acute kidney injury, okay? But if you cut out an acutely injured kidney, it's not injured, it's histologically normal. And if you recover from that period of critical illness, the function is usually very good. We're obsessed with biomarkers in medicine, trying to do blood tests so we can anticipate what's going to happen. Loads of new biomarkers of, of kidney failure, but the two that have actually come out of the best things to anticipate that someone's kidneys are, are going to fail are markers of cell cycle arrest. So they're not markers of cell death, they're just markers of the cells in the kidney being programmed in so-called multi-organ failure to just shut down. Not to die, they're not injured, they're just being told to, to not do anything, to hibernate or to estivate, again, which are terms that you hear Mervyn use. Um, so what have we discovered in intensive care medicine with our big randomised controlled trials? Basically, that the vast majority of things that we do in intensive care medicine, aggressive treatments, putting in big lines, um, using fancy technology, most of them increase mortality. Very few of them are very effective, and that probably the best approach is to do the absolute bare minimum you can that will keep the patient alive and to support them while they have appropriate treatment, so if they've got an infection antibiotics. Um, because most of the things we do have no benefit, they just give us something to do. Okay. Um, so 
for people like me and, and as many of the big critical care researchers allude to, you know, we like to sit and drink coffee on intensive care and relax. And actually the research tells us we should probably do that more, not go into the ward quite so much if we can possibly help it. So we've said lower transfusion triggers in critical ill, give less blood, that helps. Ventilate them less. Don't put massive lines into the pulmonary artery because that's a very risky thing to do and the information it gives you doesn't help. Um, don't aggressively control blood sugar. Um, there was a massive study in uh, Africa treating children with malaria. In a &E, someone comes in with low blood pressure and they've got an infection, we give them fluid, we can't help ourselves. We give them fluid to bring the blood pressure up because we think blood pressure's come up, our heart has come down, they look better, we've done some good medicine, high five. Um, the feast study, which is worth looking up. There's a great video on YouTube, that five-minute video that tells you about this. They looked at what happens if you don't give them a, a big bolus of fluid. Um, if you just treat the malaria and don't give them fluid. And while they were doing the study, or the arm where they were giving fluid, they were saying we gave them fluid, they looked better, their observations got better. But when they did the maths, their mortality was increased. It was better if you didn't give them fluid. That sent shockwaves through the critical care world. People didn't believe it. We thought they must be making it up. Um, and so we're finally beginning to accept that even the illusion of physiological gains, the idea that someone looks better and their observations look better because we've intervened, we've overridden their physiological autonomy, um, that even if they look better, we might have increased their mortality by meddling. Okay. Um, if you've got an infection, you should give less blood. You shouldn't worry so much about the blood pressure and give as much adrenaline. You shouldn't feed people as much in critical illness because do you want to eat when you're critically ill? No. People, people don't complain of hunger very much in intensive care. But we feed them in spite of that. And actually, underfeeding them, they do better than if you feed them aggressively. Um, giving lots of fluid um, doesn't help. Um, even... <laughs> Even basic life support, mouth to mouth and CPR, is better than if a medic turns up and puts a tube in and, and ventilates you and does shocks and things like that, potentially. Um, and if you give people lots and lots and lots of oxygen, their outcome is worse. So we're getting there, we're realising we should be doing more of less, which is good, but we haven't got there by uh, you know, adopting the, the minimalist evolution approach. We've got there by doing big, big studies and going, oh, didn't expect that. Um, this is something that, that Randy and George wrote in their book about how we should approach um, uh, defences. He says we should be careful to distinguish defences from other manifestations of perfection. So not all the things that happen when someone's ill are bad. Slow to conclude that bodily defence is maladaptive. Is that left? Cool. Uh, and cautious about overriding those defensive responses, which historically we've never been, we've never questioned whether it was the right thing for us to intervene. That was an assumption. Of course, it's the right thing for us to intervene. Um, all that research that I just put on the previous slide has showed us, has brought us to this conclusion. What's a bit sad? He wrote that 20 odd years ago. And Randy's not a critical care clinician, he's a, he's a psychiatrist, he's an evolutionary medic. And yet, from the understanding they had at the time, they were able to put that suggestion forward. And we blindly arrived at that con 
conclusion through a lot of research money. Okay. Uh, and we're finally coming around to that school of thought. Um, what's going on here? So this is early 20th century um, and this poor chap has got syphilis and this poor chap has got malaria. Uh, this chap is, is a guy called uh, Julius Bargmanyarek. He's an Austrian uh, physician. And he noticed that, that syphilis, which at the time was a bit of a, bit of a disaster, the progressive tertiary syphilis and neurosyphilis, general paralysis of the insane. It's not a great disease to have, as the name suggests. Uh, it was very hard to treat, but they noticed that people get febrile illnesses when they've got syphilis, which doesn't particularly make them febrile. <coughs> tended to have quite good outcomes and clear their infection very well. Um, malaria gives you a high fever. You will get very hot if you have malaria. So, in the days before medical ethics boards and things, Bagniara said, well, why don't we get some blood with malaria and inoculate it into people with syphilis? Then they'll get high fever, and it might get rid of the syphilis, and then we'll treat the malaria because it was treatable with quinine, uh, and then that might improve mortality. And it did, massively, um, which was a good job for him, and it was a good job for this chap. Uh, and he actually won the Nobel Prize for medicine in 1927 for this intervention, which was called pyrotherapy, um, for obvious reasons. Um, deservedly so, he was an interesting character. Um, was a car carrying member of the Nazi party. Um, although his first wife was Jewish, had a particularly bitter divorce. Um, he had various other weird and wonderful beliefs, but I think certainly this was a very interesting piece of medicine uh, and long forgotten for a long time. So since then, we've always treated fever with paracetamol, we give them ibuprofen. We've never really questioned the idea that they might benefit from fever until recently. Um, this, is, this is one of my favourite slides in evolutionary medicine. So this is from a paper in Science in 1975 by Matt Kluger. Uh, and he questioned whether fever was beneficial in infection. So he took these desert lizards. The good thing about them being they're cold-blooded, so experimentally you can inject them with an inoculate of uh, bacterium, give them a systemic illness, but by turning on or off their heat lamps or restricting their access to heat lamps, because the way these guys modulate their temperatures by basking, uh, you can control whether they're allowed to get hot or not, and they change their behaviour. So usually if they've got an infection, they go somewhere hot and bask, and they ramp their temperature up. So he was able to give them a, uh, a bacterial infection and then experimentally uh, manipulate their temperature. You can see in that little graph um, how the temperature that they're allowed to achieve correlated in survival, and they had pretty massive mortality if they weren't allowed access to their sun lamps. And the more access they had, the hotter they got. And you can see the ones that achieve fevers of 42 degrees C, and the vast majority of them survive. The guys that, that could only, I mean, really, anywhere under 38, you're probably going to die. So he then said, well, what happens if we do what, what, what we do in human medicine, which is give them a drug that's, that, that counts as fever? So he gave them salicylate, which is syndrome is uh, aspirin, basically, uh, which lowers your 
uh, febrile response. So if you had uh, an antipyrectic drug and despite that became febrile, you had an excellent outcome. If you didn't have any of the drug and had a fever, you had an excellent outcome. If you got the drug and didn't mount a fever, you were dead in less than three days. Okay? Again, just an animal model, but a very interesting uh, and exciting paper at the time. So, some years later, um, and Randy, again, Randy, talked, Randy and George talked about a lot in their book, um, and the idea caught on, and the, uh, the ANZICS group, which is the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care, who were more enlightened in this respect uh, than perhaps elsewhere, said, well, let's look at temperature profile and critical illness. Uh, did a big paper um, in intensive care medicine and identified that actually, if you have a high temperature early on in critical illness, your, uh, if the cause is an infection, your mortality is lower. And that surprised a lot of people. Um, and it made us wonder whether we should be dishing out paracetamol at quite the rate that we do dish it out when someone has a fever. Um, another question that Randy puts forward is it's not necessarily right or wrong to treat the fever. The question is to know why they've got fever. So if you know someone with a mild viral illness and they feel a bit ropey because they've got a fever, as long as you're confident it's not an acid infection, by all means treat that fever. If someone's got multi organ failure and high temperature, maybe you should think twice about the consequences of blocking that response. So on the back of this, Paul Young and the rest of the ANZICS group um, did the HEAT trial, um, which is basically the first. Uh, I mean, bear in mind, paracetamol is the, the most commonly prescribed drug in the world. Fever is probably its second most common indication to prescribe a pain. So you'd think there would be a large research evidence behind paracetamol and all these different indications whether it's any good. There isn't. This was by far away certainly the biggest study. Um, and, and the only, I would say, large, credible, well-designed, randomised controlled trial, blinded as well, um, looking at paracetamol and fever. Which is a bit scary, isn't it, given how long we've been using it. Um, our approach prior to that is, it must make a difference, it must be good because we know it is, because we've always used it, because we're doctors. Um, which is a shame, but... Uh, it kind of begs the question, we talk about what we like, the phrase evidence-based medicine, that, that's a phrase we, we feel very proud of. But it begs the question, well, what else would you base your practice on other than evidence? And the answer is uh, personal opinion, what we've taught, we taught, what we've always done, things we've seen work before, and how dare you question me, I'm a doctor. Okay? Um, Evidence-based medicine has only really come in the last 20 years, unlike the rest of science, which is generally trying to predicate itself on evidence. Um, so they randomised people to people who were unwell, got into intensive care, thought to have an infection or proven to have an infection, who had a fever, and you either got placebo drug or you got paracetamol. Because there were arguments on both sides to say having a high fever is metabolically demanding, it's bad, or it's protective. And we didn't know, but we assumed that we were probably had been doing the right thing by giving it. So, so the result they found basically was uh, no difference in mortality whether you gave it or whether you didn't. Um, so it didn't seem to do harm, but it certainly didn't give you any benefit either. Um, 
and intriguingly, uh, in, in the subgroup that went on to die, if you, if you were someone that was going to die and you had paracetamol, it, it took you, on average, about five or six days longer to die. You still did die, it didn't stop you dying, but it slowed down the dying process. If you were going to survive, you tended to get discharged maybe about 18 hours, 20 hours earlier than if you hadn't had paracetamol. So maybe it is a benefit, um, but certainly it wasn't really apparent in that. Um, but we never questioned that, it, that there might be no benefit in giving this. And paracetamol is not a risk-free drug. Um, uh, certainly this weekend I've looked after one chap who had fallen at liver failure from an accidental paracetamol overdose. Okay, we'll need a transplant because of that. Um, so it's not an entirely benign drug. Um, there are other studies that will go on from this to try and tease out the answer to the question of whether we should be given this in critical care. I'd say this is it's probably the first big authentic Darwinian medicine critical care trial. Um, right, so that's the multi-organ failure and sepsis rant over. Complete change of tack looking at Tim Burden's four whites. Preeclampsia, so preeclampsia is an illness that uh, occurs in pregnancy, and if you ask a doctor what happens in preeclampsia and why, they wouldn't ask, answer the why bit, because no, they'll say no one knows, it's a mysterious disease, the only cure is to deliver the baby, but what happens is basically that you get incredibly high blood pressure, um, you can get fitting, which can be fatal, you can get kidney failure, you can get liver failure, and a variety of liver and kidney failure syndromes. And the, the, the treatment is to control the blood pressure. If the blood pressure too, gets too high, you're at risk of having intracerebral bleeds, and that's a, a quite common cause of death in these people. Um, and once you've controlled the blood pressure and stabilised the mother, you deliver the baby. And if you deliver the baby, everything settles down within about 48, 72 hours, and, and it's completely back to normal. So that's the cure, is to deliver the baby if you can. Um, and if you say, well, why is that? What causes it? If you say, oh, the placenta, genetics, placental dysfunction, bad things, and they'll talk about proximate mechanisms and um, sort of muddle on evil humours in the blood, basically kind of voodoo medicine lack of understanding. Um, so this chap, David Hayden, came along, he's a biologist, he's not a clinician. Okay, his, his current research interest, I think, is mosses and ferns. Um, but he is a very, very astute evolution thinker. And he said, well, he talks about uh, R.A. Trivers' conflict theory. So although in medicine we would always think of mum and baby, it's a unified bond, they are one and the same, they both have the same interests. But from an evolution perspective, they only share half of their genes, so immediately their interests are divergent slightly. Sometimes they're common, sometimes they're different. Um, investing your resources in a particular offspring involves an opportunity cost because at some part of the point you might want to invest it in something else. Growth, restoration, other offspring. Okay. Um, and so Trivers recognise that there's this trade-off, there's a reproductive trade-off between investing in one offspring and another. And that means inherently there is a genetic conflict because the genes present in the fetus have said they only share half of those genes. Okay? So 
in terms of conflict, offspring have evolved to try and acquire more investment in the parent than is necessarily in the parent's best interests to give. So again, kind of a, a tug of war. Um, that slides a bit off the end, isn't it? Um, so in terms of why, how this relates to preeclampsia, he suggested that if the blood supply to the fetus in the womb is inadequate, that the fetus will try and strike back and get more blood by manipulating the mother from within the uterus. Okay? And he didn't say this is a universal response, it's a conditional adaptive response. So if the fetus recognises it's not getting enough nutrition, enough oxygen, enough blood flow, then the response is activated. So you won't see it in all pregnancy. The mother then responds by saying, well, hang on a minute. You're trying, to, you're trying to take all my blood flow and my nutrients. I have to look after my own body, and I don't want you to kill me by um, you know, dysregulating my uh, cardiovascular system. Uh, and this conflict plays out via the placenta, which is kind of a conduit between the mum and the baby and has slightly uh, mosaic characteristics. And it's dynamic across the trimesters. As the baby gets bigger, its capacity to manipulate mum grows because it does so by hormones. You don't really need to understand this very much, but in short, the blood flow to the, to the fetus is determined ultimately by the systemic vascular resistance of the mum. So if the, the baby can squeeze mum's blood vessels, it will squeeze more blood and nutrients. That's, that's the simple physiological premise. Okay? Um, so what Haig hypothesized is that the fetus is producing something by the placenta that incre increases maternal blood pressure to get more nutrients for itself. So what you actually see is that this causes bad things in the mum's cardiovascular system, endothelial dysfunction, because of vasoconstrictors, drugs that squeeze uh, the arteries that are released into the maternal bloodstream by the placenta. It's a fairly simple hypothesis. So from that you can draw a number of predictions. You would say that at high altitude, where the atmosphere is hypoxic, and therefore the blood supply to the fetus um, has less oxygen, you might expect to see more preeclampsia which you do. And I've got references at the end. In twin pregnancies, where the blood supply is divided between two fetuses, again, you would expect the fetus to say, hang on a minute, I'm expecting more than I'm getting here. I think I need to squeeze a bit more out of the mum. And in twin pregnancies, you do see more preeclampsia. Where the spiral arteries, which basically um, is is how it is the, again the conduit and the blood supply. Uh, if they're not well remodeled by trophoblasts, which basically means you get a limitation of flow to the fetus. If you can demonstrate that histologically, you see more preeclampsia. Um, and in first pregnancies, so birth weight tends to be lower in first pregnancies. Um, so you might anticipate that the baby would try and extrude more blood flow, and you do see that. Um, you tend to see the hemodynamic changes in the placenta before you ever diagnose preeclampsia. Um, and again, you hypothesize it's evolved because it's adaptive. It must have some benefit if it's evolved. And actually, high blood pressure in pregnancy, which is kind of on a spectrum of preeclampsia, in the first trimester is associated with better fetal outcomes. Not a lot of doctors know that. 
and they would probably tell you you were lying if you said that. Um, and you get less uh, less disease in the infant um, if there's pregnancy-induced hypertension. Also, perinatal mortality is lower, and the weight and gestation length of babies in a, in a preeclamptic twin pregnancy, uh, the mortality is lower, and the gestation is longer, so you get a better fetal outcome okay, in those pregnancies, which again would be a surprise to a lot of my medical colleagues. So you can see from epidemiological data there is benefit to preeclampsia. It can be adaptive. Um, this graph is looking at um, PIH and basically uh, risk ratio of disease. So first trimester pregnancy-induced hypertension, much lower disease profile. So again, evidence and adaptive response. I'm going to have to crack on a little bit because of time. Um, so we've identified the vasoconstrictor, the thing that it is kicking out. It's called soluble FMS-like um, S-flip-1. It's produced in the placenta. If you remove it, um, which you can do with a dialysis machine, if you hook up the preeclamptic mother to a dialysis machine and filter this out, the blood pressure goes down, the markers of kidney failure go down. Okay? Um, and we do have a graph of this. So this is um, the dotted lines are going onto a dialysis machine and removing the S-split one. So when you remove the S-split one, the blood pressure, which is the main problem in treating these people, the blood pressure comes down each time you do it. The index of protein to creatinine ratio, which is a crude marker of kidney failure, again, comes down each time you filter off the S-split one, and these are S-split one levels and how they change. So you can clearly map out, basically, that this correlates very well with the disease. So there you have someone who's an evolutionary biologist walking into medicine and saying, looking in terms of Tim Bergen's four whys at the ultimate adaptive question rather than the proximate mechanisms of all this and high blood pressure and we don't really know what's going on, and saying, well, what's the adaptive significance of this? And from that hypothesis, we've then been able to go on and look at the proximate biology from a completely different perspective and identify what's causing the problem and a treatment that can treat it. So it just shows you the power of, of the evolution medical approach when applied to medicine. Again, if you go and ask an obstetrician or an obstetric anaesthetist who David Hague is, or even what a split one is, they won't know. Never heard of it. If you ask them what pre causes preeclampsia, they will tell you in proximate terms um, that it's to do with placental dysfunction. It, it's poorly understood. It's idiopathic, okay, which is a, a favourite word in medicine for donor. Okay, it just shows you nothing about biology makes sense except in like the evolution, as you said. I'm putting that slide up again because I think this is so um, pertinent to critical illness um, from the Nessie Williams book. If you haven't read it, I would read it. It's still very relevant and it's telling 20 years on how much of the things that are anticipated in there have actually um, come to fruition. Um, all of this stuff is in a paper that I'm working on um, for publication, but I will probably call, if I dare, the Dawn of Darwin Critical Care Medicine. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter, I do tweet on this, this kind of thing. Um, 
I hope that's been of some interest. I welcome any questions of any kind about medicine or evolution or evolutionary medicine. And um, thank you, Peter. Thank you.